Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is the man who was a former minor league baseball infielder in the Baltimore Orioles farm system, where he played with the Bluefield Orioles, the Stockton Ports, the Florida Instructional League Orioles, the Dallas-Fort Worth Spurs, and the Rochester Red Wings from 1967 through 1971. He is, however, best known for many films he has made about sports. His 1988 film, Bull Durham, based in part on his own baseball experience, earned him an Academy Award nomination for Best Original Screenplay. His new book, The Church of Baseball, The Making of Bull Durham, Home Runs, Bad Calls, Crazy Fights, Big Swings, and a Hit, takes us behind the scenes and tells the story of the making of the film and is an insightful primer on the art and business of movie making. It is an absolute honor to welcome one of my favorite filmmakers of all time, Ron Shelton, to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Ron. I'm happy to be here. Hope I get up the ball club, you know. <laughs> Love it. Uh, there are a number of turning points in your life. The first one may be October 6, 1957, Game 4 of the World Series. What did Eddie Matthews and that game mean to you as far as your religious background? Well, I talk about this in the book a lot because I grew up in a rock-solid Baptist church, except we also love baseball. We love God and we love baseball. And... uh and our local hero, from, I'm from Santa Barbara, California, and the great Eddie Matthews was from Santa Barbara. And Santa Barbara High School, all that, you know, I had followed in his footsteps. And um, we actually skipped church to go watch a World Series game, and, and we thought that God was going to strike us down. And Eddie Matthews hit a home run to win the game in, in, in game four and turn the, turn the World Series around. So as I point out in the book, we started going to church less and less. Um, and so Eddie might have liberated us a little bit from, from you know, the uh, uh, too rigorous approach to spiritual issues. Let's put it that way. Interestingly enough, you had the opportunity to maybe walk up to Eddie and tell him what he meant to you. Um, but you didn't do that. Is that something you regret all these years later? No, I, I I still make that decision if there's somebody who I admire or have has meant something in my life from a distance. Uh, I tend to leave them alone, you know, in an airport, in a restaurant. Uh, they don't need me to interrupt their day. Um, so I, I've made that decision over and over and over. I, the, the book ends with me making the same decision about Mickey Mantle. Yeah. So I have to tell you, I love this book as much as I love this movie, and longtime listeners of this show know what a huge compliment that actually is. And the reason I love the movie so much was the amazing dialogue. The book also has some amazing lines in it, and one of my favorite lines in the book is when you're discussing players' reactions to Jim Bouton's Ball 4 book. The line is, there's little time for posturing. Everyone's naked, literally as well as figuratively, and everyone's daily performance is not only reduced to statistics forever, but is on display for all the ruthless critique by fellow comrades in arms. Can you expand on that as as to how it related to your minor league career? Yeah, I'll expand more than you probably want me to. Um, 
the the locker room is a place that I have, you know, I, I, I hold in fairly high regard. And I got angry when, you know, and I don't want to get into partisan politics here, but when when Trump made his famous statement about how he grabs women and inappropriate and all that, you know, it was just, this is just locker room talk. And and I jumped to the defense of the locker room because guys in the locker room don't talk like that. They really don't. Um, I think maybe the women on Sex in the City talk more like that than guys in the locker room who tend to be fairly respectful in my history. And what guys in the locker room are mostly ragging on each other about good games, bad games, uh, you know, you know, if you have a bad complexion, you're a pizza face. If you've got, if your head's too big, you're a jughead. If you're, I mean, there's nothing is off bounds in the locker room, but it's done out of, out of a kind of, we're all in this together. We're all completely flawed human beings trying to, you know, get two hits and make the play and move up the ladder. So there's something that's humbling, uh, and, and connecting about the locker room. Men get to know each other and, uh, travel together and, you know, baseball, you live together. There's no other sport that goes on forever. You know, 162 games in the major leagues. That doesn't count the playoffs, which are about to happen and go on forever. And that doesn't count all the spring training games. And that doesn't count winter ball, which half the guys go play. There's 17 professional football games. And then the playoffs. There's 60-something basketball games. Or no, more than 60 now. But um, so baseball, you, you play 200 games maybe a year. Uh, so it is it is more like life in that regard, the daily grind of it. And the locker room's liberating. It's like the workplace. You know, if, you, if you've ever had jobs in the factories or blue-collar jobs, and I've had those, you know, the lunchroom or, you know, or the place guys used to go smoke. It's that kind of place. Um, uh, so I, I'm very defensive of the locker room in there. That's a longer answer than you wanted. <laughs> That's great stuff. Uh, aside from some great stories about Joe Altabelli, another player named Ron Shelton, Dom Bell or Steve Belkowski, you're actually able to pinpoint a road to Damascus moment in your life, and it was a road trip to Little Rock. Can you tell our audience a little bit more about how and why Sam Peckinpah's film The Wild Bunch changed your career arc? Well, I love to go to movies to get out of the hotels in the miners because you're not staying in great hotels. And the air conditioning was better in movie theaters. So I discovered if you went to a movie at 1 o'clock, you could be at the ballpark at 4.30 when you had to be there. Um, and in Little Rock, I remember clearly the movie The Wild Bunch was playing right across the street. So I went to see it at 1 o'clock. And it just kind of shook me up in all the ways that – the arts can shake us up, a great piece of music or a great book or a performance or something. And I couldn't figure out why this movie was more com- complicated than I thought, why, why, why it was working at so many levels. So I kept going to it. And I, in a certain way, I've been going to it ever since. So, um, you know, it's a movie that's become a classic. It was much criticized when it came out because it's got famous violent ending. Um, but it's also very human. <laughs> the, you, you know, you, you, it's a bunch of killers chasing a bunch of killers, and you care about them. And I kept wondering, why do you care about these guys? 
Well, the writing was great. The directing was great. The acting was great. The story was great. Uh, it was about men growing old and the world passing them by. It was about way more than violence. Um, and at um, any rate, I ended up sort of gradually becoming a filmmaker because of that. And now, and I was adopted by some of Sam Peckinpah's team. His editors found me out there trying to sell screenplays. And some of them are still on my team. So I think Sam was probably the most influential filmmaker, even though our movies don't exactly look alike. So you also talk about your early writing experiences. Uh, many of them, you say, you threw into a fire. The first one was about the wrestler, classy Freddie Blassie, and his secondary claim to fame. What do you recall about that script, and what did you learn from it? Well, I, I love um, Freddie Blassie and, and the wrestling. This was before it became worldwide wrestling. It was kind of local everywhere. And, you know, it was, it was in, in L.A., it was a... Channel 5, KTLA, and they covered roller derby, wrestling, and boxing. I became a boxing fan that way. But the the, the, the theater about the wrestling, you know, these guys all had roles to play. There was, and they were very ethnically, you know, there'd be the bad Japanese guy. And I mean, they were shameless about this, the bad Italian guy, and then the good Italian guy. And they just, but, you know, boxing used to, in the 30s and 40s, promote fights like that. You know, they would, I mean, Joe Lewis was called the Brown Bomber, so they audience because of brute for or against the black guy. I mean, uh, Billy Kahn, C-O-H-N, he was Irish, but some places they changed his name to C-O-N-N because there was either a pro-Jewish crowd or an anti-Semitic crowd. I mean, so this goes way, way back. And I, I just thought it was fabulous uh, kind of lowball theater, kind of Marx Brothers type stuff. And Blassie was the villain in L.A., um, and uh, I discovered that he had, I mean, he was horrible. He ripped your glasses of the, the announcer and he was spit on you. I hit you over the head with chairs. Um, and he had long flowing blonde hair, you know, one of those guys. Uh, and, and, uh, really, really entertaining. And he, he, um, uh, I read that he had raised some prize tulips and won a contest somewhere and it really humiliated him because he didn't want to get, to get out that he was, a sensitive guy. And I wrote a script about that. It wasn't very good. Um, and I learned that he was a great character, but he didn't yet have a great story. There was no, you know, tragic flaw or anything. It was just a, a performer who raised tulips. So I was smart to burn those scripts because somebody would find them now and put them out there and mock me for them. But I, I think you can, I think as a writer, and it's, it's anything. We, we can be our own toughest critic if we allow ourselves to be and, and don't become such a critic that it strangles us. In other words, I know sometimes I'm applauded, sometimes I'm booed, uh, sports, movies, whatever. You've got to realize that you're not defined by that. You know, <laughs> to risk winning, you're going to fail. That's pretty obvious. And the people booing you generally are people who don't risk anything ever. So why do you care? Um, and I think playing sports, I, I, I recall in the book a story uh, at, in Rochester for the Red Wings and the International League. <clears throat> I, um, I remember one day a, a guy hit a slow ground ball, you know, off the end of the bat and you're charging it. And it hits, you know, kind of spinning and it hits the edge of the grass and the dirt. I mean, 
any infielder will tell you those are the most impossible plays. And you've got to make the play flawlessly because the guy's quick. And I didn't make it. But from the stands, it looks easy. And so I go to the local corner bar where I'd always go to have a couple of beers and, and nobody wants to talk to me. They're ragging on me. So I had to go find another bar. The next night, I make a diving play. Well, any player can tell you they're easy because it's a reaction. Nobody expects you to make it. Now I go to the same bar. I'm a hero. So I got booed for not making the hard play, and I got cheered for making the easy play. That's a good life lesson to have when you're 21 years old. So it's interesting you bring that up because obviously the the process of writing a script is such a long process. How were you able to deal with the differences of being able to to shake off that bad play and make a good play the next day and having that instant feedback as opposed to writing process where the feedback loop is so much longer? Well, when you're writing, the feedback every day comes from yourself. I mean, every morning I see what did I do yesterday, <laughs> throw it away or mark it up. Uh, the point is you got to show up to work every day. I don't care what it is. I mean, think about sports. Let's say baseball again. You're doing it every day. How many days do you really want to not go to the ballpark after a, you know, 12-hour bus ride or coast-to-coast flight where you're 0 for 9 and you're struggling? And you can't say, you know, I don't think I'll – I think I'll sit there with an outer. Game time, 7-10, ah, no, I won't be ready until about 8-30. You can never, ever do that. So whether you're a writer or anything, what you do, you can't say, I don't feel like going to work today. You know, um, I just heard Jerry West say something. <clears throat> I mean, he, though he's from West Virginia, he's, he's a kind of a, a god in L.A. And uh, he was talking about this load management thing for NBA players. All right, I get it. They're making a zillion dollars. West told the story. He said they scheduled, they didn't schedule as well as they do now in the NBA. He, they had a Friday night game in LA at the Forum. This is the Great Laker team. Saturday night game in the Garden against the Knicks. And a Sunday afternoon game at the Boston Garden. And that's when the Knicks and the Celtics and the Lakers were all the three best teams. And they didn't have charter flights, <laughs> they didn't fly first class. And he's, and he said you would have had to rip his uniform and put a, off him and put a gun to his head to keep him from playing all those games. And that's a dramatic story, but that's kind of how, how I feel. Uh, whether you're writing, directing, or what, anything I've ever done is, you know, show up, play hard, <laughs> and walk away. Wow, it's great stuff. So I have to tell you, I, I received the review copy of the book from the publisher just as, as I was finishing up Mel Brooks' autobiography, and I had just finished the TV show The Offer, which is the backstory of the making of The Godfather. And I have to tell you, those three basically are the equivalent of a master class as how fragile making a successful movie is. You reveal that Bull Durham never managed to get beyond a C-level in its test screening numbers before release, a statistic that easily could have doomed it from the beginning. Um, Mel Brooks faced the same issues on so many of his hits, and a lot of them may have never gotten made had it not been for Alan Ladd Jr. So keeping with the baseball theme, are studio heads similar to a baseball manager when it comes to showing confidence to an unproven player 
when they see something in that player that no one else does? Well, studio heads used to be more like that. Now it's all corporate algorithms, demographic studies. You know, there's no personalities running studios anymore. It's all, you know, used to say what U.S. Steel used to be. or It must be what Microsoft and Google is. It's like, is anybody actually running this thing? You know, I talk about the great personalities of studio heads that I was meeting with. But Ned Tannen, remember, who made Slapshot and all those guys. And I like this script. I don't want to make this movie. Ah, bring me something else. You know, at least you were dealing with human beings, you know. Um, but in those days, that's not that long ago, you, you had the heads of studio would just roll the dice because they felt like it. It would be like a general manager or a manager saying, I really like this guy in double A, bring him up, even though his numbers don't look good. You know, this pitcher's ERA is over four, but I swear to you, he's, he's on the verge of something. And and the organization said, well, Earl Weaver says this guy's got it, send him up to triple A. So um, I think that intuitive, instinctive part of the game has been taken out. I mean, even in Moneyball, Michael Lewis's book, you know, they talk about how, how they – they, they disparaged the manager for the Oakland team. I mean, like they didn't think he was even needed. And I think that's, that's where sabermetrics is, is wrong. I think there's analytics work, but the human thing is just is as important. And the, and the successful teams figure out how to put them together. Because the manager is like the director of a movie. The manager knows that your third baseman hitting cleanup um, is in a huge fight with his wife. <laughs> um, he's got an ankle injury that he's trying to hide because he's a tough guy. He's his mother is got serious diagnosis. That's what the manager knows. The sabermetrics doesn't have any of that input, and so the manager keeps him out of that game. He also knows that. At least sabermetrics tells him he's hitting 111 lifetime against DeGrom, but everybody's hitting 111 lifetime against DeGrom. So I think that's the intuitive thing that a film director also has to know. The actor, the star, comes to the ballpark, and I know one guy I worked with, he was great to work with, except a few times his wife visited, they'd get in a fight, and they'd be in a horrible mood. And I just tell him, can you please keep your wife away? We'll be fine. Um, so, you know, you might change how you direct them that day. Bad day to yell at the star. Another day, good day to yell at the star. So there is, I think, managing and coaching uh, are related. You know, Tommy Lee Jones first called me coach, and now they call me coach, and I consider that an honor. Absolutely. So it's so interesting because, um, you know, sometimes the te- yeah, and, you know, how everything is now analytics and you just mentioned the studios now going to analytics, but it, it's like baseball. Sometimes a team with the most talent and the best analytics don't always win. It's more about chemistry. And clearly you had that as the number one priority in casting. And there were some pretty interesting moments during casting, including um, what you characterized as the worst audition you've ever been a part of. Yeah, at, to that point and ever since. Um, Robert Wall's been on the show before. Tell us a little bit about Robert Wall's edition. 
There, there's one addition I didn't put in the book, I think, that I'll tell you about that might have topped Robert's late, uh, years later. Well, Robert came in, and I didn't – I knew him because Good Morning Vietnam had come out. And I knew he was a comic, but I hadn't seen Hollywood Nights. And he came in, and he was so fired up. He was so high. I thought he was on on bennies and, and uppers, and I, he wasn't on anything. That's just Robert normally. And he starts talking 100 miles an hour and he about, uh, about the script and this and Tim McCarver and does Tim McCarver talk, talk too much and, and, and is the worst sports movie ever made, William Bendix, or is it Jimmy Pearsall? And, you know, he, and he won't even shut up. And he, and he doesn't even pause to take a breath. And he bounces around the room. And then he's gone. I don't think he ever got to the script, and to the lines. And the casting director turned to me and said, I'm so sorry. I brought him in. I mean, Bonnie Timmerman was a big-time New York casting director, and I was a first-time director. And she says, I'm sorry. My mistake to bring Robert in. And I said, no, I want you to hire him. Now, she thinks I'm nuts. I'm a first-time director. She said, but that was a terrible audition. I said, I know. It's the worst audition I've ever seen. She said, well, me too. I said, hire him anyway. Because <laughs> because that energy, that enthusiasm, that baseball knowledge, you can't teach that. My job is to direct it. <laughs> and he ended up, you know, damn near stealing every scene he's in. So uh, let me tell you the, a story that I, I haven't told in a long time. The This was uh, when I was casting Blaze. This was in New York. We're looking for the actress to play Blaze. We had Paul Newman uh, to play the lead with the, the governor of Louisiana. And... We were doing casting. It was like in the Essex house or the, the Ritz on Central Park South. Um, they would get a suite and they'd have a living room. And then I'd bring in my staff so that you could audition people there. I mean, I wouldn't audition actresses in my hotel room. That sounds like Harvey time. I, but that way you don't have to go rent an office somewhere and you treat it like an office and you'd always have your casting people there. So a woman comes in. She's got short, spiky, platinum white hair. Now this is, you know, Blaze stars a mountain girl from West Virginia in the 50s, not Spike. And this woman comes in with a whippet dog that big. Well, two feet. And, and I'm already upset because you don't bring pets to auditions. And she always said, this woman's dressed in, like, black leather. You know, as far from the world of Loretta Lynn as you can. So the dog keeps jumping on her lap, and she's trying to read. And I'm going, this isn't going to work. And she said, well, I can't read without the dog. I said, well, you can't read with the dog in your lap. And now there's a, a spiked heel, like a stiletto heel that I have with rhinestones all over it. And it's got, like, a wire that goes up the calf of the woman, and I was that was put on the coffee table just as a icebreaker. If you needed, if you're nervous, let's talk about that shoe because that's the kind of shoe the strippers wore in the fifties. And so I say, I don't know what we're going to do, but her dog. She puts her dog on the table. The dog takes the shoe by the wire strap, starts running circles, so that wire is coming out and the shoe's over here bouncing, and the dog drops the shoe and takes a huge dump right in the carpet 
and then spots the window over the, the kind of heaters they have in New York hotels that we don't have in LA. You know, the, the oil heater, or whatever, the get, I don't know what it is. Those heaters. Radiators, yeah. Radiator, radiator. And, and the dog, you can tell them what California got. So, uh, it's, we don't have heaters here. It's 140 outside. <laughs> so the dog having been dumped on the floor, the girl grabs for him and he goes running to jump out the window. We're on the sixth floor. And he leaps over the radiator and the, luckily the window short knocks himself out. I'm not joking. So I said to this woman, I, I said, you know, this audition's over. This isn't going to work. And then, so she left with the dog and we had to clean up after. Anyway, oh. that was the other worst audition ever. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So there were a, a lot of great Annie's who auditioned, but as the book explains, the list of the list, quote unquote, uh, of who the studio would accept kept changing. And, and Susan Sarandon wasn't even on the list, but she actually willed her way <laughs> onto it uh, with the help of a tube dress. Um, it's absolutely impossible to think of anyone else as Annie now. How nerve-wracking was the casting of Annie for you? It was driving us nuts because we had this narrow window to, to make the movie in. You know, we shot the movie in October, November, and half of December. You can tell because you can see the breath of, the, of everybody. Uh, and if we don't get it off the ground within these 30 days, we don't make the movie. And, and we were two weeks before shooting, and we still didn't have Annie. Think about that. It, it supposed to take 16 weeks to prep a movie. We spent five. And she flew on her own dime from Italy, even though she was not on the list. And how she got on the list is, is a, a big story in the book. She came in and dazzled us and, and, and Kevin. And it was a Friday. But keep in mind, two weeks later, we're shooting. We don't have any. And so we were sitting around the office pouring a Friday night little scotch, Costner and a, a couple of producers and me, and we said, what are we going to do? She's not on the list. And and an hour later, we get a call from the head of the studio. We said, and I just, I saw, I saw Sarandon a couple of weeks ago. She looks great. Well, we knew he was lying because she'd been in Italy up until an hour ago. Uh, she looks great. Put, let's put her on the list. So we hired her before midnight. She was already on a plane back to Italy. What she had done is gone from the audition to the studio and worked her way up and down the halls till she found the head of the studio, schmoozed with him. Hey, how are you? Hi, good to see you. And and all the men and executives at the studio were dazzled by her. I mean, she knew how to, you know, to play the game. And um, I tell that story uh, because it, it, it shows how willful you have to be in this business, even when you're Susan Sarandon. Like I said, I could not picture anyone else in that role. Uh, it's interesting you, you mentioned in this interview as well as in the book about that you were not a big fan of sports movies. Um, they just didn't ring true to you. You, you mentioned um, Fear Strikes Out uh, in this interview as well as William Bendix in, in the Babe Ruth story. Um, you've taken that genre and they all ring true and authentic. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it has a lot to do with your professional baseball experience. But Kevin Costner has made several sports movies. What makes what makes him 
so believable as an athlete in all those great films. The only other ones, you know, and I racked my brain to figure out what who else has been in multiple sports movies. You mentioned Slapshot and Paul Newman was absolutely phenomenal in it. But he was also great in The Hustler and someone up there likes me. Tom Cruise and Jerry Maguire, Days of Thunder and all the right moves. What makes those guys stand out above everybody else when it comes to playing athletes? Well, they are real athletic. You can't fake athleticism. You can teach certain nuances of the sport, but you can't teach a guy to be athletic. And Kevin is far and away the best athlete star ever. Um, you know, Kurt Russell was a minor league baseball player. He could have been in this movie, but he was unavailable. Uh, but Kevin, I played golf with him. I shot hoops with him. <laughs> uh, throw a football around with him. You know, I could make a frisbee movie, and he'd be great. So. He, and he was a high school athlete and, uh, uh, yeah, golf, what else? He got, I think he could do any sport. So that helped. Now, it's interesting about Newman that he's been in, you know, and as you point out, The Hustlers, one of my top 10 favorite movies ever. It, it, if that's a sport, I, I don't care. It's a great movie. But, you know, he's not a big guy. He was a little guy. He weighed about 140 pounds and he's playing a convincing boxer. And he was a real-life race driver, for real. Um, Cruz, I've never met Tom, but he's obviously naturally athletic. Uh, most actors think they're athletes, and they're not. Most athletes want to be actors, and they're not. <laughs> um, you think Keel O'Neill wasn't great in Shazam? Shaquille O'Neal is Shaquille O'Neal. Yeah, you know, he does a, I don't know if it's national or LA, but he does so many commercials. It's like, do you really need the money? He just likes it. Yeah. I mean, I know him a little bit. Uh, he, he just likes doing it. God bless it. Uh, yeah. So it, it, I, I think we admire things that we wish we could do, <laughs> you know, a little bit, maybe. Um, I wish I could play the piano. I can't play him. My daughter's brilliant, you know. Um, but that's the key is Kevin's the real deal as an athlete. I try to find real athletes to play all the parts. So there's also a, a little bit of a method to my madness in bringing up Newman and Cruz. Um, because, and you said that The Hustler is one of your favorite movies. Um, the Color of Money, which continues the story of uh, Fast Eddie Felton over 25 years later. Stallone has had success in bringing Rocky along to where now he's trained Apollo Creed's son. Cruz just recently reprised his uh, Maverick role. You mentioned The Wild Bunch is a film that made you think of layers of characters. There are two movies um, that, for me, the characters are so deep that they stay with you, just like when you got out of that that movie theater. Um one of which is The Breakfast Club. I would love to see them at a 40-year reunion. And I would just love to see where Nuke, Annie, and Crash are these days. As a man who's created these characters, once a film is done, are you finished with them? Or do you like it sometimes say, like, I wonder what they're doing today? Well, good question. And again, we talk about that in the book. It's it's too late to go back and visit them now because it's – they're 35 years older. <clears throat> the problem with making a sequel to Bull Durham, even 20 years ago, is if you start off with Crash and Annie together, where can you go without, 
you know, the audience doesn't want you to break them up and bring them back together. That's phony. So if you start with them having fallen apart, the audience would be hate, hate you because they left the first movie feeling so good about themselves and their lives. And now you're saying, what? They got a divorce or they, you know, so you're kind of doomed and it becomes a fable more. And I can never figure out how to do the sequel. Um, I wanted to do sequel to White Men Can't Jump, which somebody's now doing without my involvement, permission or remuneration. Um, cause that was the story that could keep living, I thought. And, uh, but I think Bull Durham was over. It was just plain over. And I, I'm, you know, Paul Newman, I guess was reading his new autobiography. Um, they, uh, that they just discovered all these notes he'd written. He was nominated 10 times. He won an Oscar for Color of Money, which was not his greatest performance because I, it's not the greatest movie, but it's an, it's a fun movie, but it's not, you know, it's not some of the other, it's not Cool Hand Luke. <laughs> cool Hand Luke's a great movie. Right. Absolutely. Um, but, um, I, I think it's just hard to find an athlete who can act. So it's interesting because I rewatched the film this week and I found something so ironic and, and like one of those full circle moments uh, you talk about in the book when you get to the Orioles organization, how, you know, there's another Ron Shelton there. So you become Wayne Shelton. And I watched the credits to the very end and I see like some of the players that played on the opposition teams and they're at the very bottom is Eddie Matthews, but it's not that Eddie Matthews. How ironic was that? And like, did you think about that at all when this guy shows up to be one of the extras? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I I, I didn't know if he could play yet, but I said you're going to be in the movie. <laughs> you know, and we had Grady Little running a baseball camp so he could find ex college ball players, minor leaguers looking for work. Uh, you know, semi pro guys just to fill out the rosters. So I said, Grady, you just you work them out every day with my actors who are having to work out and tell me who I can, who you can put on the mound and who you can put at first base. And so at least all of all the pitchers were convincing and most of them were minor league or ex college players. Uh, at least Grady didn't leave uh, your pitchers in too long, which would go on to be. Well, let me say something. Let me, let me defend Grady. <laughs> no, I agree with you. Uh, you, who, you. You can't take Pedro out. You just can't. You, you, got a lousy, you got a lousy bullpen. And what, people forget, what people forget is they didn't hit line drives. They got dunk, dunk, dunk. Yep, absolutely. But it's Boston, and you know Boston fans. So, so lastly, one of the things you talk about in the introduction of the book is when you went down to Durham for the 30th anniversary of the film, how they thank you for saving the town. I would also argue that you had a huge hand in the renaissance of minor league baseball Full disclosure here, my um, softball team was named the Bulls, complete with the Durham Bulls uniforms because of that movie. You tell a great story about a couple who moved to Durham because of the film. Can you share that with us? Absolutely. This was just four years ago. And I, just, I was just back in Durham for a book signing, so it's kind of full circle. Um, the um, uh, It was the 30th anniversary four years ago, and there was Bull Durham Night and, and they really do give me credit for the, you know, the new ballpark, the research triangle, you know, it's a booming area now. It's a great area actually, because all those old tobacco warehouses are now fancy condos with high ceilings and bricks. I mean, it's, so it's a cool place. And, um, the, um, this couple, I was doing a Q and a 500 fans got to do a Q and a, this couple said, 
we moved to Durham because of the movie, which seemed bizarre to me. Um, I love the Wild Bunch, but I'm not moving to Durango, Mexico, you know? And uh, so can we take our picture? Can you take a picture with us and our two sons? I said, sure. So I'm at the ballpark, and they got the photographers there. So they come down, and I got the sons, you know, my arms around the boys. One's about 10, one's about 8. And I, you know, I'm a dad. I've got four four kids and grandkids, and so I like and I like it. So I said to the oldest boy, I said, what's your name, son? And he, he says, I'm Crash. <laughs> and then I look at the the younger brother, and I look at the mother, like, I'm afraid to ask. And he says, yeah, I'm Nuke. I'm Nuke, he said. So um, I, I had to write this book. Amazing. Ron, thanks so much for your time today. More importantly, thanks for so many great films, great character studies, and, of course, for this great new book, The Church of Baseball, The Making of Bull Durham, Home Runs, Bad Calls, Crazy Fights, Big Swings, and a Hit, available now anywhere where books are sold. Ron Shelton, film director, screenwriter, and former minor league baseball player. 